Hello and welcome to this episode of Smarter, a podcast by clinicians for clinicians brought to you by Marta, an Australian leader in healthcare for more than a century. My name's Gillian Whiting. And I'm Catherine Cooper, Clinical Specialty Coordinator for Mothers, Babies and Women's Health at Marta. And we're coming to you from Mianjin, the land on which this podcast is being recorded. Today, we are joined by Dr. Peter Birch, Director of Neonatology at Marta Mothers Hospital. Peter has worked at Marta for six years, and prior to that was a neonatologist on the Gold Coast in Melbourne and Auckland. Peter is interested in ensuring the provision of family-centred care in neonatal critical care units and promoting quality improvement, infection prevention and respiratory support. And he's also trained in point-of-care cardiac ultrasound. Peter has a preterm baby of his own who's now 25 years old. Today, he's joining us to talk about how to care for premature babies once they're born. Marta. Caring for the community for more than a century. Innovators in health, education and research. Home to world-class clinicians. State-of-the-art facilities. High-quality, Australia's largest care. and leading Turning maternity scientific providers. discoveries into life-changing healthcare advancements. We are Marta. We are Marta. We are Marta. This is Smarter. Hi, Peter. Welcome to Smarter. Hi. Thank you. How do we care for premature babies once they're being delivered? What's the main priority? There's a number of priorities. Um, and I, I guess even before they're delivered, they're, it's really important that there's good communication and preparation for the birth of these babies. From our perspective as neonatal specialists, the number one priority um, is transitioning these babies to outside the womb life um, and getting them breathing. And how do you do that? Look, um, there's, there's a number of ways we do that. We try and encourage the babies to spontaneously breathe by themselves um, and then we provide them with some breathing support. Um, it's something that we all take for granted, but um, a premature baby, in fact, any baby that's just been born um, has, has lungs that are full of fluid. They don't have um, a background of inflated lungs. They don't know um, what it's like to breathe air and it's something that's completely new um, and needs to be stimulated with them. Most of that stimulation comes just from being born. Um, but for premature babies, that may not happen um, and we need to give them help. So we give them help by um, giving them gas to inflate their lungs um, with pressure. Um, and we've done quite a lot of innovations in how we might deliver that. Um, and sometimes we have to go down a pathway of um, doing the breathing for them. Um, so, Peter, what other things that could can be done around um, helping babies to breathe when they're first born? Look, I mean, there are things that can be done even um, before the baby is separated from mum. Um, so delayed cord clamping is something that we do to try and um, assist babies in transitioning. Um, there's some evidence that shows that improves outcomes for premature babies. Uh, and it's it's just a matter of pausing before we cut the cord. So the baby is delivered um, and then we wait for a minute before we cut the cord. And we use that time um, to stimulate baby to breathe um, and transition to outside life while still being supported by mum's, um, the placenta and mum's circulation. Um, there may be some help in terms of uh, extra blood the baby gets, um, but the evidence suggests that it's around um, assisting the babies to transition to um, life outside of the womb while still being supported by the placenta. And is that a discussion that you obviously need to have with the parents? When when does that happen and what's the nature of that discussion? Yeah, look, I mean, that, that discussion is something that we would try and have even before the baby's born. It's really important for us to try and give the parents an idea of what having a premature baby is like. So we, we, as best and as, as often as we can, we like to meet with the families um, well before their baby's born to, to run through that information. We've got extensive parent information sheets that we give to parents about um, 
what it's like to have a premature baby. And within that, we would have a discussion about delayed cord clamping. If there isn't a time for that, we should always do that in our um, in our timeout. So in the birthing room, either a delivery suite or um, the theatres, we would have a discussion with the teams involved to say, um, you know, this baby's coming prematurely. Um, the best practice would be to do delayed cord clamping. Uh, is, is there any um, contraindications to doing that? Um, and if not, we would go ahead and the parents would be, or mum particularly, would be part of that um, discussion to know that that's happening. Can you talk us through a bit of details about it? Like exactly how do you do it? How long do you do it for? Yeah, so so, so um, the, the first... Um, consideration is to make sure that the baby's kept warm. So we're having a baby that, that that comes out that we're not wrapping up straight away. So we actually delivered the baby into a um, plastic poncho. So um, it has a little, um, it's a little plastic sheet that we can wrap around the baby with a, with a, with a headpiece that um, we can tighten up so that the baby's is um, fully covered over so that they don't lose heat from evaporation. Um, and then we place the baby um, on either below mum or on her legs if she's in um, an operating theatre. Um, and um, the midwife will be there supporting the baby and a neonatal specialist um, will be there observing to make sure that the baby looks okay. Because, you know, if the baby is still struggling and not transitioning and needs further resuscitation, we can't persist with um, delayed cord clamping if the baby actually needs help immediately. So we watch to make sure that that's okay. If the baby is, is doing what we hope and is transitioning, we, we can stimulate and we can help the baby to um, start to enjoy ex utero life. Um, and uh, and if that's going well, we do that for a whole minute. And we'll usually sort of do a countdown, you know, you know five seconds to go. Um, you know, one second, you can clamp the cord now. How important is that um, that skin-to-skin Contact and you said it, it's it's not very long, is it? In this situation, yeah, it's not it's not truly skin to skin like as, as we would see that. Um, so that that contact isn't part of necessarily a, a big part of what we're doing because um, for a mum who's delivering a baby vaginally, the the baby is often held um, either just um, at the entrance there, to, so it's not lifted up too high. Sometimes it can be placed sort of lower on her pelvis. Um, and in theatre, it's placed on her legs, which are covered with drapes. So it's not really about that skin-to-skin contact, which is something we will try and do as soon as we can afterwards, depending on the stability of baby. Um, but uh, it's more about baby getting used to that, that life outside of the womb without um, being completely unsupported. You mentioned at the very beginning that one of the first things you do is make sure there's no contraindications. What might be some contraindications. Oh, look, if, if the placenta is already separated away from the womb, then there's not a, a steady blood supply that's coming, so that's not really a good um, a good idea to do the delayed cord clamping in that situation. And if there are twins where they share the same placenta, so some identical twins will have a shared placenta, and if that is the case, then there's a risk that during that delayed cord clamping, blood will not go in the right direction. So they're um, the main two contraindications that we would have. Delayed cord clamping can have an impact on cord blood collection should the patient wish to donate the cord blood to a public cord bank. Delayed cord clamping may mean there is a higher chance that there will not be enough blood left in the placenta for collection. The volume of cord blood collected is critical for successful transplantation. Those, the, the little ponchos you talked about before, yeah. the, the neo wraps? They're, yeah, they're, they're a yeah. version of the neo wraps, yeah. How effective are they in yeah. preventing hypothermia? Yeah, they're, they're really effective. They, they help us a lot. Um, and there's some really good evidence about using using plastic wraps and, and we've just converted those to using them um, during the delayed cord clamping as well as during the resuscitation. Um, and then when that minute's over, we take the baby to a, um, a heated resuscitation table that makes sure that we um, are absolutely prioritising um, you know, thermoregulation and keeping babies warm. 
And Peter, really tiny babies have pretty friable skin. Mm. Does that near wrap have a protective effect or would there be some instances where you wouldn't use it? Um, no, it's not, it's not particularly protective and um, it, it is, it's, it's soft and it, it's, um, it's healthcare grade material. So it's actually made for wrapping up small babies. Um, so it, it doesn't tend to cause skin injury. And I, and I can't think of a, a contraindication to using the, the wraps that we have. What other methods do you use to keep the baby warm? In the past, we've used um, heated um, uh, mattresses to put babies on. Currently, our um, we have some really powerful heated tables that we don't need to use the um, heated mattresses for, uh, and they keep babies warm. But we p- part of the really important um, methods is actually monitoring temperature as well, so taking the temperature regularly because it. Um, the keeping the baby in a normal temperature is important. It's not just keeping babies warm, it's keeping them in the normal temperature range because we've certainly um, had a lot of quality improvement work that we've done to make sure that babies are kept warm um, and part of that has actually led to some babies being too warm. So we need to keep an eye on that and, and regulate the, the temperature devices that we use to maintain a normal temperature. With all those different devices and methods, how long does the baby stay either wrapped up or, or being kept warm? Depends yeah. on the situation. Um, it's it's pretty it's pretty standard. Um, so look, the, the the wraps that we use are for for, for extremely preterm babies, um, babies who are sort of over a kilo. We would tend not to use the wraps; they don't need to use those, and we would use just um, you know a heated mattress or a heated. Um, uh, resuscitation table, um, but our, our really tiny babies they they stay in those wraps until we get them up into their um, their permanent incubator or their incubator for the next two weeks, and we use humidified heated gas within the within the um, the incubators. So um, the the incubators that we're using, we, we maintain a uh, humidification around 80 to 100% for those first few days and for, for the very little babies. And they will, um, the tiny babies will stay in those incubators for weeks um, to maintain their temperature. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, almost one in five babies require admission to special care nurseries or neonatal intensive care units. Babies are more likely to require admission if they were born preterm, First Nations, of low birth weight, or born as a twin. Going back to um, ventilation and breathing difficulties, how do we care for babies at that point? Yes, yeah, so most premature babies will need some support with their breathing, um, and we've made a real push in the last few years to try and reduce um, intubating premature babies at, in resuscitation at delivery. So we talked about the humidified heated um, gases and we're using those for respiratory support. So we will actually um, place a spontaneously breathing baby on CPAP. Um, so that's continued, continuous positive airway pressure um, to provide them with um, airway pressure to hold their lungs open. Um, and we'll do that with a little mask on their nose and a snorkel setup that um, we apply almost immediately after they're born, if they're spontaneously breathing. They might need some um, extra pressure and extra support for a period of time, and then we'll put them back on that um, CPAP system. Why why is humidification so important, Peter? Um, Well, the airways can can dry out. If we're giving dry gases um, that are provided out of the wall, those gases are are, are dry, they will dry out the airways and they will, um, they're they're harsh and can cause airway damage. Um, But also the humidification um, is important for preventing water loss as well. So you lose, um, premature babies lose a lot of water um, out of their skin. They're not good at retaining it and they'll lose a lot um, from their breathing. So there's a lot of insensible 
water loss and that we have to try and maintain when we're giving fluids. So preventing that by giving um, humidification either in the incubator or in the airways is important to prevent water loss. And you said you talked about bubble CPAP being like almost first line. What if that's not effective? Yeah, so that's, if that's not effective, I guess we've got um, two methods. We try, um, as I said before, we try not to intubate babies at delivery. So if bubble CPAP is um, maintaining the baby's breathing but their oxygen requirement's going up and it looks like they're not going to be able to stay on bubble CPAP um, because they need more support, we can give them surfactant, which um, helps to reduce the surface tension in the lungs, um, opens up the airways and allows the babies to open their lungs more and breathe easier. So we can give them um, surfactant via a little tube um, that's uh, almost like a 14-gauge cannula-sized tube that goes into their trachea while they're on CPAP. So we intubate them with that while they're on CPAP. Um, We leave that in the airway while they're still spontaneously breathing on the CPAP machine and we put the surfactant down into the trachea. They breathe, inhale it into their lungs and it spreads it better through their lungs. So how long would you do that? The actual process itself would take five minutes to do um, and we would do that, try and do that within the first few hours and then we'd repeat it in six hours' time if the baby still needed that Um, and we would do two or three doses of that um, as required. What, what does surfactant actually do, Peter? Um, so you, we we don't think about our own breathing. And I sort of said before, we don't think about breathing, it just comes naturally to us. Um, but every single water-air interface, there is surface tension, which is why little water boatmen crawl along lakes and you get droplets that form. So at every water-air interface, there is surface tension and it pulls the, the water molecules tight together. Now, um, babies are essentially watery and their lungs are watery uh, and then they breathe air into that. So this, as soon as you get that, you get alveoli where there is an air-water interface. And so the natural um, physics of that is to pull the alveoli closed. So surface tension continually wants to collapse your alveoli and collapse your lungs. What surfactant is is a phospholipid molecule where instead of having an air-water interface, you you deliver surfactant and um, you get um, water, um, phosphate, lipid, air. And you don't have an air-water interface anymore. You get no surface tension and there's no drive to collapse your lungs. So as... Um, all mammals do, um, the pneumocyte cells will release surfactant continuously to line the alveoli on a regular basis so that we don't even have think about surface tension as being a problem. But premature babies have immature systems to release um, and produce surfactant so they don't do that spontaneously themselves, so they're fighting against surface tension wanting to collapse their lungs down. So that combined with CPAP keeps some air in the lungs at all times, right? Correct, yeah. So so when we breathe out, even if we breathe out as hard as we possibly can, our lungs are still inflated. Whereas when a baby is born and they breathe out, they've got no air left in their lungs. So they have to establish air inside their lungs even when they breathe out so that their lungs don't completely collapse. Otherwise, every breath is like your first breath. And so having your lungs expanded makes it much easier to breathe. It's a bit like the analogy of the hardest breath to blow up a balloon is the first few breaths and then it gets easier. So once you get your lungs expanded, it's much easier to breathe once they're open. So providing CPAP opens those alveoli up and if the baby can produce their own surfactant, then opening the airways and opening up the alveoli means that they can then secrete the surfactant themselves into that space, whereas if the lungs are collapsed, there's nothing to secrete surfactant into. So CPAP as a first line will hold the lungs open to allow surfactant delivery, surface tension to go away, babies to breathe easier. If they can't do that themselves, we give them surfactant 
to try and line those airways and then hope they do that themselves. If that still isn't working, we will put a, a tube down into their lungs, secure their airway and um, and deliver ventilation to maintain that, that breath in, in, in various different ways. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare reported that of those babies requiring resuscitation in Australia in 2021, nearly 32,000 were resuscitated by continuous positive airway pressure, while nearly 22,000 were resuscitated by a suction. Cardiac compressions were the least common form of resuscitation, with only 769 instances recorded. There's a lot going on clearly at this point. <laughs> um, putting yep. myself in that position of a parent, how do you break all of this down in uh, at the right time, the right message at the right time? Yeah, so we, we, we talk about that before the babies are born. So if we get a chance to talk to parents about that, we would talk to them about why your baby needs breathing support. And we've got parent information sheets um, at various gestational gestational ages that will explain um you know, what the likelihood is of your baby needing breathing support and why. There are also parent information sheets just on breathing support. Um, and so we do what we can to try and explain to parents what that means. We do tend to use the balloon analogy. If we can give your baby CPAP and hold your baby's lungs open, it's easy to breathe. Um, I tend to talk about surfactant as a lubricant to make it easier for your baby's lungs to open and close and easier for them to breathe. Um, and then we talk about ventilation support. Uh, um, and it's really important when we talk about ventilation with parents that we talk about it in a way that this is supporting your baby's breathing until they get um, bigger, stronger and more mature to breathe on their own. Because a lot of people talk about um, ventilation as life support and it's something that you switch off at a period in time. So it's it's not, this is this is something that we do to maintain babies breathing while they're mature um, enough to do it on their own. Um, and we've got other um, methods that we can try and use to help them progress to breathing on their own as well. So we've talked about the priorities, um, mm. babies delivered breathing, thermoregulation. What, what else do you need to consider? Look, I mean, we need, we need to consider the whole baby. There's there are, there is a, there is a lot uh, in our, our consideration. Some of the really simple things are around um, how we how much we handle and move babies. As as you can imagine, um, you know, really small, fragile, premature babies. They are they are fragile. Um, and one of the really important things we're trying to prevent um, is any harm to the baby. Um, and and premature babies are at risk of having bleeding within their brains. So things like intraventricular hemorrhage. We're where bleeding into the fluid around the brain can cause injury to the brain tissue itself. Um, and then that has long-term impacts for that baby and the family. So things that we can do to try and prevent those babies from um, having injury to their brain is, is really a priority, particularly in those first, um, we call the golden hour, but in the first sort of 48 hours, just reducing the, how much we handle babies. Even as simple as maintaining their head in a neutral position so that we're not moving their head around and potentially disrupting the flow of blood to the baby's brain is really important. Um, we, we've we've created some um, quality improvement projects here at the MARTA um, around trying to reduce handling, and that's really about um, a team approach. You know, who who in the team is, is responsible for what part of their role in the resuscitation and therefore what role they have in moving and handling the baby, just so that there's a structured approach to make sure that the baby isn't handled by a whole lot of different people and therefore moved and around a lot. Within that, though, it's really important that there's some positive handling that goes on as well, which is um, which does mean that even though we're not trying to move and position babies a great deal, we still want skin to skin. So we talked a little bit earlier about skin to skin after delivery. What we're trying to do is as soon as mum's recovered from um, the birth, which is a little bit longer if she's had an operative birth, um, then um, trying to get 
that baby onto mum's chest um, and some skin to skin as early as possible. And we see that as positive handling and positive touch and that probably has um, um, positive effects rather than um, increasing those risks of, of um, brain injury. Um, Peter, some of that sounds really quite new from when I trained, you know, donkeys years ago. What has changed there's, there's been a really real focus on quality improvement in the preterm space. Um, it's something that's been really pushed across Australia and New Zealand. We have regular um, continual practice improvement meetings once a year. We're always talking about what we can do to try and improve the quality of care we provide to babies. And um, particularly in the area of prematurity, that has, um, there's been a lot, of, a lot of pushes to try and translate what we think is good practice into actually practicing it, um, putting together bundles of care so that everybody is aware of what we're trying to do. So I mentioned briefly before about the golden hour. And so that um, that stuff around trying not to handle babies and trying to do our best so that they get positive handling, not um, not negative, stressful handling has, has been a really important part of that. And that, that starts with delayed cord clamping um, and trying to improve transition. It's um, trying not to intubate them at birth, so providing humidified CPAP straight away. Try not to intubate them to give surfactant, so giving non-invasive surfactant, so surfactant with minimally invasive or um, less invasive surfactant administration. Um, and then reducing the amount of handling that we have, right down to um, not necessarily putting um, umbilical lines into all of our premature babies, but putting in a drip, which is quicker, and then maybe putting in more definitive um, access a couple of days down the track when they're when they're more stable so all of all of that has come about in the last maybe five years and it's it's also coincided with our um, pushing uh, the borders of, of viability in fact we we're trying not to talk about borderline viability anymore, but extreme prematurity. So babies that are 22 and 23 weeks, which um, when you trained Catherine wouldn't have been resuscitated at Mata Mother's Hospital, are now um, offered routine resuscitation. Um, and uh, tw- <clears throat> 24 week is very, very much routine. Um, and um, we would be advising parents that that we would recommend resuscitation at these kind of at this gestation. Um, so those conversations have changed, um, and those that change in those conversations has coincided with our trying to improve the practice to improve the outcomes for those really little babies. And I've mentioned a few of those things. So many challenges, Peter. Thank you so much for that today. Quite all right. It's been a pleasure. Peter, before we go, we'd like to introduce you to a little segment we call The Checkup. So we have questions we want to know more about you, the professional, and you, the person, as well, okay. Peter. So Catherine has five quick questions. Okay. They're not tricky. Are you ready? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Who was the last person you FaceTimed? My wife. What was your first concert? My first concert? I think my first concept was probably some sort of metal group. <laughs> uh, it was possibly Guns N' Roses. Nice. <laughs> nice, we'll go with that. <laughs> if a genie could grant you one wish, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that is an extremely difficult question. Um, more time. More time. <laughs> What's your superstition? <laughs> is this awkward Peter I'm not sure oh, no. I'm, I'm a very scientific person so I don't believe in superstitions rationally but I do internally as most people actually do um, what's my superstition um, I, I play squash and whenever I play squash I have to put on my socks the same way 
<laughs> and we're long socks. I love it. I love it. Very scientific. And finally, if you could impart one piece of knowledge to a medical student, what would it be? I, I, my, I guess uh, it would be make sure that you um, make, make sure that you have good mentors around you. Have, have people that will support you, people that you can go to and people that you can trust to talk about things because, um, you know, a career, particularly a career in, in neonatology, a career in obstetrics and gynaecology, you, you see a lot of things that are impactful and I think you need to have processes to manage all of that. So I think it's really important right from the outset that you have um, mentors and um, supervisors to guide you. Wise words. Yeah, wonderful. Peter, thanks again so much for joining us on Smarter. For those of our listeners who are at home or in the car or just having a well-deserved break between patients, thank you for tuning in. Please join us for our next episode where we talk about how to handle extreme prematurity with Dr. Luke Jardine, Deputy Director of Neonatology at Mater Mother's Hospital. See you next time on Smarter.